so good to be here uh, together this morning. It's so good to be in this book of Psalms uh, throughout the summer. We've really enjoyed it. The summer comes to a close. This is the last psalm I'll be doing uh, this summer, and I'm thankful uh, for the chance to be here with you all. Let me pray for us just one more time as we begin. Lord, we're grateful again for this time. We're grateful uh, that you have called us together. We're grateful that you are a speaking God who gives us your word, and we pray uh, that you would help us today. We need your help. We need you, as we sang earlier, and uh, we pray that you would continue to form and shape us today uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through uh, the, the, word, uh, the word that you've given us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you know, there's an inclination as you get older to kind of settle into the things that you like and then to become more skeptical of new things, new activities, new hobbies, etc. And I've actually embraced this inclination in many areas of my life, but one area where I have not wanted to go in this direction has been my music listening. I didn't want my playlist to get frozen in 1998, as great as that year was, and so I like to introduce new songs into the mix. And there are a lot of downsides, I think, uh, of technology, of the various media streaming services, but I will say that I've really enjoyed the music streaming service that I use and also the ability to receive new recommendations on songs that I might like. It's helped me discover a lot of really good new music. But that's not the only way I discover new songs. Over the years, my very close friend, Jason Kerwin, and I have discovered that we share almost an identical musical taste. And so we will very often send one another new songs to listen to. And almost all the time, these recommendations, I would say, I won't speak for Jason, but they're pretty much right on the money, right? Yes. But they aren't always <laughs> right on the money. Some months back, Jason sent me a few songs to listen to. And I listened to one. And I didn't like it. No big deal. But it was apparently a big deal to my musical streaming service because this service determined that I should like this artist and their songs. And yet this artist and their songs repeatedly showed up again and again in my recommendations. And it turned into a thing, actually, because I began to be suspicious of the songs that Jason would send to me. You could see how this could have formed a massive rift in our friendship. Eventually, I came up with a solution. When Jason sends me a new song, I have a separate account for another service. I'll listen to it there. And then if I like it, I'll fold it into my music streaming service and my playlist. I know that sounds like probably a lot to go through. And now that I've said it out loud, maybe it is. <laughs> but to me, it's worth it because I really do want to just keep discovering new music. There are new artists to enjoy, new experiences, right, to sing about, and new things that I've experienced that might make a particular song more meaningful. The old songs are, are still great, don't get me wrong, but there are plenty of songs left to be written and heard. As I said, we've been spending time this summer as we've done for the past few summers in the book of Psalms, which is in itself a collection of very, very old songs. These are the songs that were sung by the ancient Israelites as they longed for their Messiah, their Savior to come. And these are the songs that connect us with generation after generation of people that have followed and looked to God for help and for hope. At the same time, as our psalm today acknowledges, there are new songs left to be sung. And our passage today helps us to see why there is so much to sing about. We're going to see that the words of our songs are in response to God himself and what he does through his word. And in this psalm, we will see how that frees us from so many of the false hopes that we can tend to be drawn to. 
We'll take this psalm in a few parts, and I'll start with verses 1 to 9, which I'll read again. Verses 1 to 9 say, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. You know, each psalm uh, that we read can, can kind of stand on its own, but there's often a correlation from one psalm to the next. And it seems like there's definitely a rhythm here from Psalm 32 to Psalm 33. You'll notice when you look at most psalms that at the top there's like a little superscription, right? It's a, a one or two words just kind of categorizing the psalm and maybe who wrote the psalm if we know the author. But there is no such superscription in Psalm 33, which points us back to Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, we have David, who was the great king of Israel, experiencing God's love and forgiveness. We actually used it for our assurance of forgiveness today. And that naturally leads us into Psalm 33, where we hear the psalmist, possibly David again, responding to God in praise. And the psalm doesn't just praise God, but calls all those who follow him to join in this praise. It says, praise that befits the upright. It just, it just fits. It makes sense for those who follow God, who are beginning to see him for who he is, to praise him in this way. And we hear a couple of things. We hear how we should praise God and then why we should praise him. So how do we praise? Well, first and foremost, at least in this psalm, we praise him with music. Specifically here, instruments are mentioned. The psalmist mentions a lyre and a harp which is obviously not an exhaustive list, but just two of the examples, right? I mean, today we have a, a piano, we have a cello, we have a guitar, sometimes we'll have drums, sometimes we'll have a trumpet, and all those are good and appropriate ways for us to praise God. And verse 3 tells us that these things are to be done skillfully. And let me just say, as someone with no musical skill, I am so thankful for the skillful musicians that God has raised up in our church. You all are a huge, huge blessing to all of us. Believe me when I say you are an answer to many prayers. Because your skill and the beautiful way that you sing and play your instruments is a reflection of the skill and beauty that God has created the world with. But I also love that those of us who are not skillful in any way are included here. Because we're also to praise God with loud shouts. And that even I can do. All of us are called to, and all of us have the privilege of singing joyfully and loudly, and all of this fits with the way God has created the world and created us. One of the ways that God makes us as human beings is that music is one of the ways that we're shaped and formed. Music is memorable. We all know this. Early this year, uh, Catherine and I started watching a PBS show called All Creatures Great and Small. Has anyone else watched this? I know a few people have. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Good. It's very good. I highly recommend it. And the show had this short, really simple, beautiful 30-second intro song. And one of the things with streaming services today is that you can just skip over the intro and, and get right to the show when you watch it. But we never thought about doing that, right? Because we loved that song. And that song, even as short and as simple as it was, 
it just kind of settled us down a little bit and primed us for a show that was really good and really beautiful. And I'll be honest, yesterday while I was writing this, I went on YouTube and I listened to it a couple times while I was writing this and it was warm and it was comforting. Music has an impact on us and done well, it reveals the beauty of God and the beauty of his creation. And it's one reason that, that our singing together is such an important part of our week. I know in our church tradition, there, there's a great deal of emphasis on the sermon, and that's not inappropriate. The sermon is, is very important, but music is so important as well. God's Word calls us to sing to Him, to sing to one another, in part because it honors God, but also in part because it shapes and it forms us. There's an author, James Smith, and he commented on this. And I think he's right on the mark. He says, song seeps into our bones in ways that didactic information never will. To sing the story of God's gracious acts is not just to recite them. In the embodied, effective rhythm of song, the Spirit plants the story in the epicenter of our being, in our desire, in our imagination. Singing the story is the way it gets into our bones and under our skin, shaping the very way we perceive our world. And this is part of why we are called not just to sing, but it says here in Psalm 33 to sing a new song. As we said earlier, it's not that the old songs are bad. Psalm 33 itself is, is a very old song. But new songs are called for because God continues to work, right? God continues to do things that we need to sing about. And we continue to experience his goodness in different ways. And so it's good for us to sing and experience songs born out of different eras and different cultures and different experiences, not because those cultures or eras or experiences are authoritative by any stretch, but because those experiences help us to see God and to see his creation. And that's why I think a song like Great is Thy Faithfulness, which many of you have heard and sung, that's a very powerful song in and of itself. But it's especially powerful and I think especially formative when it's sung through tears at a funeral. That's why it's significant that a song like It Is Well With My Soul was written by a father after losing his children in an accident at sea. That's why we look to the songs sung during American slavery and the civil rights struggle. That's why the songs whispered in secret today in an apartment in China carry great significance. Because God is continuing to work and we continue to sing about his work with both new songs and old songs. And as these songs help us to, to experience God and his creation, we begin to rightly perceive the world around us, which the psalmist points out. We see that the world is created by God's word, showing us his power. But how God has created shows us not only his power, but also his character. He didn't just make a world with, with raw power by speaking his word. He did this in faithfulness, righteousness, and justice. And as a result, Psalm 33 says, the creation is dripping with his love. Every time that we experience this, we're reminded of his steadfast love. When we eat the food that he provides for us from his creation, we're reminded of his steadfast love. When we receive medical care from doctors and nurses, we're reminded of his steadfast love. When the sun comes up in the morning, we're reminded of his steadfast love. And even when we see the ways that this creation is broken and fallen. This leads us not to despair, but to hope. Because the same God who created the universe is still ultimately in charge of it. Now, when this psalm was written a long time ago in ancient Israel, there were two things that seemed really just vast and completely uncontrollable. The heavens and the sea. 
Even today, we look at the sky, right? We marvel at its vastness. There's so much of it that we've never been to and, and never will. And we look at the ocean, and it just seems to go on forever. And so the psalmist drives home the point of God's creative power by affirming that these two things were created by and controlled by the God of Israel. Just by his powerful breath, the heavens were made. And then there's the water. You know, our family was at the beach a couple of weeks ago, and our kids are are getting older now, but it wasn't that long ago, and some of you parents will relate to this, it wasn't that long ago that about half of my day on the beach would be consumed with, what, walking back and forth to the ocean, carrying buckets of water for whichever child was building a sandcastle or digging a hole. And I would just go back and forth carrying bucket after bucket, just so much water, it seemed like. But not once did one of the lifeguards come over to me and say, you know, look, that's enough water, we're almost out, please save some for everybody else. There's no way I was ever going to put together a significant portion of that water. But as the psalmist points out, our God, just as easily as he breathed the heavens into existence, he gathers up all that water. He does it in creation, and he does it repeatedly in the Bible. When his people crossed the Red Sea, you might remember that in the book of Exodus, and when they crossed the Jordan River as well. And so given all of this, not only are God's people called to sing praise to him, but everyone in the world is called to see this and to fear him and stand in awe of him because there is no one else like him. His words create, his words sustain, and his words drip with steadfast love towards his creation and especially towards his people. But of course, as human beings, we don't always live according to these truths. And we begin to see this in verse 10. And I'll read through verse 17. Verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Now we know that even uh, if it is God's word that creates and sustains, God's word and God's voice is not the only voice that there is. All throughout history, nation after nation has come up with their own counsel, with their own plans, thinking that they are sovereign, thinking that they are the one true hope of the world, and thinking that they are in charge. But notice the move that that the psalmist makes here. The counsel of these nations is barely even mentioned. It's not like he goes through a list of everything that's been said. After nine verses of, of God's word and the power and the love and the beauty that he displays in creation, all we get is a quick mention of the counsel of the nations, and the only purpose of that Mention is to say that it's not worth anything compared to the word of the Lord. Yes, the nations often plot against God. Yes, the nations often assume that they are at the center of the universe, but this is no threat to our Lord. Their opposition is brought to nothing and frustrated, and long after everyone forgets about the kings of the ancient Near East, the pharaohs of Egypt, the Caesars of Rome, or someday even the nation that we're blessed to be a part of, the counsel of the Lord the word that created the universe will endure. Now, some of you will remember this era better than others. When I was little, I was a big fan of The Muppet Show. Anyone else? Help me out here. Okay. 
couple of you, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the humor went right over my head. I was very young, but I remember enjoying uh, these characters named Statler and Waldorf. You remember these guys? These two kind of cranky older Muppets that sat in the balcony. And from their vantage point, they would kind of make witty observations about what the Muppets were trying to accomplish in their show. Now that I'm up here, we could probably do something right over here. Probably not a good idea. You know, I thought of that as I read Psalm 33, because in verses 13 to 17, we see God pictured as just kind of rising above all the plans and, and the plottings of the nations. We hear that the Lord looks down from heaven and that he sees. Very similar language if you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, where the Lord just looked down and saw. We hear that he sits enthroned and sees all the inhabitants of the earth. And we hear that he is the one who fashioned and created all these people, and he observes because God has a vantage point high above us, he's completely aware of every single thing happening in the universe. And that in and of itself is not necessarily good news, right? It's not good news if he sees, but he has no power to act. And it's not good news if he sees, but doesn't care. And that's why we need to marry this part of the psalm with the earlier part of Psalm 33. Because remember what we saw in those first nine verses. We saw a God who was powerful. We saw a secure and unshaken God who creates and rules according to his steadfast love. And that's why it's, it's not the great army that saves. It's not the strength of the warrior. It's not the war horse. In our day, it's not the nation. It's not the president or the political party or anyone else because none of these things have either the power or the character of the true king of the universe, the God of heaven. Compared to him, they really are very insignificant. And what a beautiful contrast we are given in verses 18 and 19. Behold, it says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. You know, it's interesting, verse 18 actually sounds a little bit like verse 13, which says the Lord looks down from heaven. But here it's the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. And there is a difference. In verse 13, the Lord is kind of surveying and observing as an example of his authority and power. But here in verse 18, he is watching with care and with love over his people. And while the nations and kings are fleeting and ultimately helpless to deliver their people, the Lord sees what his people endure. And the Lord in, in power and in his character, he will be the one to deliver them from death, from famine, from whatever it is that threatens them. And I think that has really, you know, far-reaching and important implications. We live in a time in history where, thanks to technology, we are, we are very aware of the grief and injustice and darkness that happens all over the world. And, and it's heavy, and it's hard, and it's real stuff. And when we think of our brothers and sisters enduring the plots and schemes of their nations, whether it's Afghanistan or, or China or North Korea, as much as we see, and we do see a lot compared to what we used to, it's so limited compared to what the Lord sees. He sees and he knows. He sees those committing injustice and he will not let it stand forever. And his watchful and loving eye is upon those who follow him and he will not let them suffer forever. And there's implications for us, I think, directly as well. Psalm 33, I think, is meant to bring hope in times of instability. And this, look, it's an unstable time, right? For many of us, probably all of us, it feels like the ground is just moving and it's hard to find our footing. And in the midst of us, I think the psalm points us in two very important directions. 
Number one, this psalm reminds us to hold firmly on to the word of God. It is his word that creates, his word that sustains, and his word that will endure. God's word doesn't change no matter what people think, even if it's popular or unpopular. As the author Flannery O'Connor said, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it emotionally. And so we never trade the word of the Lord for the word of those who oppose him because he is our hope. And I think this means something else as well. You know, if we add it all up, we have a God who creates. We have a God who, who, who rules in steadfast love. We have a God who sees. And we have a God whose eye of care and protection is upon us. A God who transcends nations. A God who transcends certainly the different factions and political parties within those nations. See, because all those things are true, it's not just the content of the truth, that we hold to that's important, it's also the manner in which we do it. I think we all feel this, that we live in a time when our beliefs and our behavior are increasingly shaped not just by our nation of origin, but our loyalty and devotion to the various political and cultural tribes within those nations. And it's tough because we live in this time of polarization, of immense cultural tension, and during these times, if we're not careful, these tribes will often demand the kind of loyalty that is only ours to give to God. And if we're honest, it's tempting for us as Christians to go along as well. We talked earlier about how God shapes us through our singing, recounting the truth of who he is and what he has done, and that this singing doesn't just reflect or restate what we believe, but it also shapes what we believe in. And more importantly, perhaps, it shapes what we love. When we sing together, we are trained to believe and love the right things, the things that God loves. Our singing, our worship is a formative liturgy, something we do repeatedly that shapes us. But as many authors point out, singing and the church liturgy itself, that's not the only formative liturgy that there is. And there's so many liturgies, repeated practices that we partake in that end up forming us in all kinds of ways. So we ask this, do we as God's people desire to be formed in a way that more and more loves what God loves? As a people that more and more trusts him, no matter what is happening in the world, as a people marked by arresting and deepening and childlike trust that God will care for us, as a people that is more and more like him, yes, of course, we want to be formed in this way. And God, as our good father, wants this for us too. It's clear in this psalm that this is what God wants for us. But of course, we see in Psalm 33, that's not what the nations want. And it's certainly not what the tribes and factions within those nations want. And we have many privileges as Christians. And one of those is to be countercultural, not just in what we believe, but in how we believe and express that belief in love. I think that means as we live in a world that seems to be increasingly divided and partisan and, and angry and reactive, we're free from going in that direction. And of course, there are legitimate tragedies and injustices that we should absolutely weep over and even become angry over. But I think God wants us to be free from the grip of the cycle of the constant outrage and the extremism and panic, a cycle that we can often unwittingly feed through the liturgies and practices that we participate in. And so we just need to ask questions of those liturgies, those repeated practices, whether it's online, whether it's cable news, whatever it is, are these things forming and shaping me? Yes, they are. How are they forming and shaping me? To be more trusting in God, more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, 
more kind, more gentle, more self-controlled? Are these people speaking with humility? Are they drawing my attention to what is true, noble, pure, and lovely? Or is the liturgy that I'm repeating just making me more upset at those that disagree with me? Hannah Anderson, who I think is one of the clearest thinkers in the church today, points out that we actually have a choice in these matters. We don't have to go along. And she says we can ask questions like, look, does this deserve my attention? Does this deserve my respect? Does this deserve my time? And she says that asking these questions disrupts these cultural forces long enough for us to entertain the possibility that not every innovation is an improvement, celebrities do not automatically deserve our consideration, and the latest news story may not be worth reading. I think that really helps us because rather than going along with the world and, and rushing in a frenzy from reaction to reaction and issue to issue, we can start to slow down as the Lord calls out to us and offers us rest. To consider other liturgies, prayer, reading God's word, reading and thinking and working and resting deeply, hospitality, practices and liturgies that counter the, the frenzy and the outrage that the world so often offers. To see that God has something better for us. I passed over it before, but in verse 12, after stating that, that God frustrates the plans and counsel of the nations, we heard the psalmist say, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now that verse isn't about America or any current earthly nation. It's about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who he had a special love and affection for because of his mercy. A love and affection and mercy he still has today towards us, his church, the people that only because of his kindness and mercy he has chosen as his own. Nothing can separate God's people from his love. And when the tension escalates and, and the ground feels unstable, we go back again and again to this truth. And this truth causes us to live in a distinctive and countercultural and beautiful way, a way that we see in verses 20 to 22, which say, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The people that are loved by the Lord have the privilege of living in this way, waiting for the Lord, not in a, in a passive way, but in an active, hopeful, watching and waiting kind of way. Living with, with a kind of settled joy and gladness, not because everything is great in the world, clearly it's not but because our Lord is in charge and because he loves us with a steadfast love, trusting in him, looking to his steadfast, unfailing love. Psalm 33, as I said, is an old song. And that last section starts with, Our soul waits for the Lord. And those very words were sung by generations of Israelites as they waited and waited and waited for the Lord. After King David, they experienced their own nation disintegrating and falling apart. And some of you know this, but Israel was then divided, swallowed up by larger and more powerful nations with bigger armies and more powerful war horses. And still when God's people sang Psalm 33, they sang the truth. And the people were sent into exile. And even in a land where the promises of God felt further away than ever, even then when the people sang Psalm 33, they sang the truth. And when they sang Psalm 33, they were reminded of God's power and also his presence, a presence that God is so committed to that God the Son himself, Jesus Christ, took on flesh and was born into a people 
in a world dominated by the Roman Empire. And Jesus sang Psalm 33. And Psalm 33 remained true even when Jesus himself was subject to the worst torture device of the Roman Empire, the wooden cross that he himself was forced to carry. Where he died not simply as an example of the wickedness of the nations, but as the ultimate act of God's steadfast love towards his people, taking on our sin as he endured this death. But though many people counseled and plotted to bring about the death of Jesus, this counsel was brought to nothing three days later when he rose from the tomb. And it became clear that the counsel of the nations was merely a subplot in the grand plot of what God is doing in the world. Martin Luther King Jr. understood all this well, and he said this, he said, evil may so shape events that Caesar may occupy a palace and Christ a cross, but one day that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C., so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by the name of Jesus. I said earlier that we continue to sing new songs because God's work is not done, and that's true, but someday there will be a new song to top them all, because someday the Bible tells us this risen Jesus is going to return and make everything right. When people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together before him, And on that day, we will sing a new song together, recounting all that God has done because of who he is and because of his steadfast love for us. And those who have trusted in Jesus will not only sing on that day, we'll also eat together. And we have a preview of that meal here today.